0: Well, good morning again, everybody. As um, Rob announced at the beginning of the service, today we start a new sermon series, and it's a topical series. Um, we do normally about one topical series each year. Um, a topical series is where we look at a topic as opposed to looking at a passage. Uh, but we look at the topic from a Christian perspective. And um, The title of this topical sermon series is Clear and Present Danger, and as some of you might know, I've borrowed that title from a Tom Clancy thriller novel, and indeed, the title might sound a little bit alarmist, perhaps a bit over the top. Um, But what I wanted to do with this sermon series is to look at the clear challenges the dangerous challenges that we are facing as Christians in our world at the beginning of the 21st century. And across six weeks, we're going to look at six topics, beginning today with climate change, next week terrorism, then political correctness, then Phil Sparrow is, Phil Sparrow is going to talk on migration and people movement, then gender, identity and marriage, And lastly, social media. Uh, So at this point, except for the talk that Phil is going to bring, I'm going to speak on all of those topics. And perhaps something that I'd like to say right at the outset is that I'm not suggesting that I'm an expert on any or all of these topics. Far from it. And after listening to my sermons, neither will you be. However, that's not what we've come here to do, is it? It's not what we're about here. What we're about in a topical sermon series is theological reflection, and that's our expertise as Christians. We've, we've come to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit with the scriptures as our key text so that we might be better equipped to serve God in the image of Christ in a changing world. So that's what we've come to do. And just to prove my point, uh, about not being an expert, I'm going to begin this sermon by saying almost nothing about climate change. Because I don't have the time, nor, neither do you, nor is this the place to go into the science of anthropomorphic climate change. Man-made climate change. So, you might be a climate change sceptic, or you might be a climate change true believer or somewhere in the middle, and in actual fact, today, that doesn't particularly matter. Because by this term, climate change, I'm actually wanting to refer to a huge global, ecological and environmental crisis that is, indisputably, the direct result of human activity. A crisis that we've known about for at least 50 years, And one that has many, many aspects to it, in addition to simply the burning of fossil fuels and accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Many aspects. It includes, for example, the impact of population growth, resource and habitat depletion, reduction in biodiversity. It includes, as I've said, the changing composition of the Earth's atmosphere due to the mass burning of fossil fuels as an energy source. From that we get the fact that the world is getting hotter. Species are going extinct at a thousand times the rate you would naturally expect. Sea levels are rising. We're running out of fresh water. We are destroying the forests that fix the carbon and release the oxygen from carbon dioxide. Farmland is shrinking as a result of many factors. Deserts are growing the ice... Polar ice caps are shrinking, fish stocks and coral reefs are being destroyed, and we are witnessing a rise in the incidence and severity of catastrophic climate events such as hurricanes, floods, and droughts. All of these things strongly suggest that famine and mass migration of people certainly in the terms of millions and possibly in terms of billions of people, famine and mass migration could be key characteristics of the century that we are going to live through. Climate change is a clear and present danger facing us and our children and our grandchildren. So where should we start in terms of trying to understand this issue as Christians? Well, when it comes to starting, a good place to start is Genesis. And if you'd like to, why don't you flip open your pew Bibles to page one of your Bible, Genesis chapter one. And it begins with the words, in the beginning. Genesis one, chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, God made the universe. God made everything. And it belongs to him, it is his. There is God, and everything else is creation, which include creatures, that is, things made by God. We are creatures. Human beings are creatures made by God. However, In contrast to all the other creatures mentioned in in Genesis chapter 1, and there are a lot of them, when it comes to creatures, there's the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, the fish in the sea, the, the teeming organisms in the sea, the crawling animals, the wild animals of the land, the birds of the sky, lots of creatures. However, in verses 26 to 28, you'll see that in contrast to every other creature, human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? Well, in the ancient Near East, the purpose of an image or the purpose of a statue, as we would call it, the purpose of the statue was to represent the thing or person depicted by the statue, by the image. And it is this representational aspect of image that is meant by the passage rather than any other understanding of image. What is meant here is that we are to represent God. We are to represent his authority. And if you look at the passage, verses 28, uh, 26 to 28, it talks about rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the animals of the land. Subdue the land and fill it. We are to represent God as his creatures, Representing his authority, we have been given dominion. However, we are to do this in the likeness of God. In other words, job just as God would do that job. Representing God, just like God. Image and likeness. In Genesis chapter 2, we come across a second creation story, a very different one to the first, a a complementary commentary on the first creation story. In this version, humanity, named Adam, is created at the start, before any of the plants had yet appeared. And humanity is divided, at the conclusion of the story, into man and woman, with the creation of marriage concluding the narrative. And if you'd like to read with me, verse 15 reads, Now, the Lord God took the Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Or, as could equally well be translated, to preserve and serve it. To serve and preserve. And so now to verses 19 to 20. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the Adam to see what he would name them, and whatever the Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So the Adam gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Um, These verses have always been especially wonderful, especially wonderful to me. Um, Although God created the birds and the wild animals, and on that basis, only he has the right and authority to name them, but God gives that authority as a free gift. He gives his authority to the Adam. God allows Adam to name them. In allowing Adam to do so, God is emphasizing that Adam truly stands, as his And he is emphasizing also that Adam has continuing authority over those creatures because they are named with the names that the Adam gave them. And God is also emphasizing that humanity and the birds of the air and the wild creatures are going to have an ongoing relationship. They need to know each other. They need to know each other's names. This is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. As, um, who, is who says that? I've forgotten. It's in a film. <laughs> and from that place in the narrative, we move quickly to the introduction of the woman, uh, the surgical splitting of the Adam into Ish and Isha, into man and woman, and the creation of marriage. So for us as Christians, we can make some exceedingly important conclusions so far. Firstly, the world is God's and everything in it. It belongs to him. Secondly, we are created to be in relationship with God, in relationship with each other, and in relationship with the rest of the creatures that God has. We need all three axes. We need all three relationships in order to survive and thrive. Thirdly, the nature of that relationship, the nature of the third relationship, is that we have been given dominion, the power and authority to rule over God's creation. Fourth, we are to do this in God's likeness. Leading us, God leads. How does God lead? Well, God leads as a servant. And therefore, our job is to serve and preserve the creation caring for what God has made. Just as God would care for what he has made. And fifthly, um, God intended for us to be in right relationship with him. He intended us to be in right relationship with each other and with the other creatures in a special place. In a special place. That place, space, was depicted, as we remember, as a garden. It's a walled area, boundaries, a place of special manifest order, an ordered place. Outside, there's still randomness and chaos at work. In the garden, God's going to order things. And the direct implication is that as humanity multiplied and filled the earth, so too would have the garden. God's kingdom reigned brought to his earth by way of his representatives, his co-regents, his viceroys, his sons and daughters, until the garden filled the earth, and the reign of God, the kingdom of God, and the knowledge of God filled the earth. That's the clear implication. And these are the upon which the rest of the Bible is written. More things need to be said, though. The chief... Which is to remind ourselves of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. And of course the first human being sin and in this act of rebellion all of these precious relationships are broken. The relationship between God and humanity is broken. The relationship between the two genders is broken. And the relationship between humanity and the rest of creation is broken. And these relationships are not broken in the sense of being totally destroyed, but they are broken in the sense that they can never fully be what God had originally intended them to be, except that God himself deems. Except that God himself comes to the rescue. And as the rest of the Old Testament unfolds, we notice a couple of other things worth noting as well. Um, We note That throughout the Old Testament, the wisdom literature, the prophets and the Psalms, we note that God loves his creation. God loves the animals that he has made, great and small. He loves the wild animals, the birds, and God loves the wild landscapes and the wilderness places. And he has a special relationship of intimacy with those things. Knowing them individually and meeting their needs with care and concern. And they know him and they call to him when they're in a place of need. There is a special relationship of intimacy with these things that for, for us as fallen creatures, we could hardly even guess that. But God loves his world and he cares for his creatures. That's one thing we note through the rest of the Old Testament. Something else we note through the rest of the Old Testament is that whenever and wherever humanity rebels against God, the environment suffers. God's first global judgment, Noah's flood, is an environmental catastrophe. Not a plague, not a war. The environment acts to destroy humanity in the name of God. So too, likewise, the judgment against Egypt in the days of Moses. So too many of the judgments announced by the prophets Isaiah, Joel, and Hosea. When we are not right with God, we are not right with each other, and we are not right with our environment. Where there is no acknowledgement of God in the land, there will be cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. Wrong this way, wrong this way. And because of this, says the prophet Hosea, wrong this way. The land dries up and all the creatures of the land waste away. The land, the wild animals, the birds, the fish, the seas, the oceans, they all suffer and are depleted. Hosea spells out for the Hebrews in the Promised Land something that they had heard time and time again, and that is that when you turn your back on God, the land itself will let you out. This is true for the Hebrews, but of course it's also true for all humanity. Whatever we touch, we eventually ruin. In the West, we are exposed to a myth that says that traditional cultures live in harmony with the land, whilst we alone, because of our Western consumerism, we ruin the environment. And therefore, the environmental catastrophe, the environmental crisis is a Western-created problem, a result of our culture. Actually, it's a myth. The myth is expounded in various forms in various places for political use, but it is, of course, total nonsense. The truth is, is we ruin whatever we touch. When we first reach a continent, our arrival causes an immediate mass extinction, especially of the megafauna, the super big or big herbivores and carnivores. If, after arrival... We continue as hunter-gatherers. We are only able to do this if we pursue a nomadic lifestyle because we have to allow time for the environment to resettle after the catastrophe of us passing through. If, however, after arrival we progress to an agrarian society, again, we typically see desertification, mass extinctions, loss of biodiversity, habitat loss, and the depletion of soil quantity or quality or both environmentally we are a catastrophe wherever we go and no tribe, culture, ethnic group, society is exempt from that judgment. It's a desperate problem. Um, what is the answer? Well, in actual fact, my. but it may confuse you. Because the answer to our problem is Jesus. Jesus is the answer because he brings us back into right relationship with God. And therefore, also back into right relationship with each other. Everyone who puts their faith in Christ is saved by God. Jesus is the answer because at the cross, Jesus died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures, so that we might be forgiven for the purpose of reconciliation, that we might God again, his children, and to know God afresh in the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, his Son. Following Jesus, therefore, we forgive each other and we love each other because Jesus teaches us to serve and preserve the community of faith. So we forgive each other and love each other, and as well as that that grace to the world around us acting to serve and preserve even um, the non-church world and especially actually our enemies praying for, blessing um, being good to those who might persecute us now the New Testament is abundantly clear that when we are in right relationship with God through Jesus we have the power to be in right relationship with each other And these two axes are healed. The New Testament is also clear that when we are repentant with respect to God, that will mean that we're repentant with respect to godly authority in the world. And as Christians, we come afresh to honour governments, rulers, we obey leaders and those who are in charge, those given authority including teachers and parents, because we're repentant towards God, we're repentant towards godly authority in the world. And, as Paul writes for us in Romans, the creation awaits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into into the freedom and glory of the children of God, who are the sons of God. You are a son of God if you believe in Jesus. Male or female, young or old, you are a son of God. That's about the authority to represent. A follower of Jesus, boy or girl, man or woman, then you represent God in His image and likeness. In your school, in your family in your workplace, wherever it is that God might call you to go. Who are the sons of God? It's everybody who believes in Jesus. Who are the children of God? A slightly different idea. They're the ones who belong to God unconditionally as children. Who are the children of God? That's everyone who believes in Jesus. That's all his followers who have put their faith in God's son. They're recognized as God's sons and daughters too. They're God's children co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it is only because of Jesus, it is only with Jesus, and it is only in Jesus that human beings are actually able to live out what it means to be in the image and likeness of God. Except that you believe in Jesus and follow him, you cannot be in the image and likeness of God. Or you're in the image of God, but you're not like God. The hope of creation that Paul is writing about. What is, the, what, what is the creation waiting for and hoping for? What is it desiring? It's desiring that many people might hear about Jesus and put their faith in him and start acting. That's what the rest of creation is waiting for. So how will we, as followers of Christ, make a difference to the world we are living in with respect to environmental issues in general and with respect to climate change in particular. Well, I'd like to make five points, which I'll move through uh, somewhat speedily. Five points. My first point is, pray for your pets. That might sound a bit flippant or even silly, so I'd better explain. Um, one morning at Ridley College in Melbourne, the Bible college where I trained for ordained ministry, one morning at Melbourne College, I, somewhat, uh, I was a very bad student. Mischievously, I asked the lecturers who happened to be at Morning Tea, I, I, who were mostly, uh, almost or entirely middle-aged single men who owned small dogs, um, I, I asked them, how many of them prayed for their dogs? And the answer was, none of them. They just kind of stared. None of them prayed for their dogs. I don't know why. I guess it was because they hadn't read Genesis chapter 1 yet. Um, you may have noticed um, in the Gospels that Jesus often mentions animals, and one of his characteristic challenges to the scribes and the Pharisees works on the basis of you already do this, so why can't you? The, 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 the challenge is on the basis of of you, uh, who would you who of you would hesitate to pull out your donkey if it fell into a ditch on the Sabbath. So why shouldn't this man be healed on the Sabbath? Uh, all of you, Pharisees and scribes, all of you, you, in the morning on the Sabbath, you lead out your donkey and you feed and water her. So why can't this woman likewise be set free on the Sabbath? And the reason that Jesus to animals and especially in his conversation with rabbis, scribes and Pharisees, is that the rabbis, scribes and Pharisees were especially concerned with animal welfare. You may not know that, but it was true. They were real animal welfare was really important to them. Why was animal welfare really important? It was really important to them because they knew they represented God. God has been kind and merciful to us. If we're in his image and likeness, we've got to be kind and merciful to our animals. It just says, God provides for all of my needs and heals all of my diseases. So I have to uh, provide for all of the needs of my animals and heal all of their diseases. I'm just trying to act like God here to my donkey. They already knew that. So here's a question. What is Jesus doing for you right now? Do you know? Exactly. Rob said interceding. "Um, Jesus is praying for you right now. Um, Jesus is praying for me right now at the the right hand side of the Father. So how are you going to represent Jesus to your cat? By praying for her. I'm not suggesting that you pray that your cat might receive Jesus and become a follower of Christ. (laughs) I am suggesting that actually... Praying for the welfare of our pets is a meaningful start to the job, our job, of representing God to them. The God who is exactly represented and perfectly imaged in Jesus of Nazareth. that's my first point. Pray for your pets. It's a good place to start. Just as an aside, I think pets are tremendously valuable um, as many of you know, sometimes I come and pay and visits on people just in order to talk to their pets. <laughs> not, a, not all of us can open can o- own pets. Um, um, and, but if you can own pets, please do so. You'll probably live longer. And kids who grow up with dogs um, are physically healthier than those kids who don't grow up with dogs. On average, that's statistically known. Um, I have a, a friend down south who runs a um, wildlife refuge centre and <laughs> sick and injured birds of prey come in from all over um, the state um, to be looked after and many are healed and set free. And the interesting thing to observe um, uh, is how sick and injured people come from all over the world to look after these sick and injured birds of prey, and in doing so, many of them are healed and set free. Um, (laughs) Looking after animals is a humanizing thing. Just as we become truly human when and only when we come into right relationship with God, just as we become truly human when and only when we come into right relationship with each other, so too, when we start looking after the creation, we become truly human. Um... I find it deep. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a bit tired. I find it deeply emotional when I see on the news um, reports of gangs of people coming together in order to help beached whales back into the sea. Of not only because it is good news for the whales and for the birds, but also because it is good news for them. It's humanizing. When we start to look after our animals, that's my first point. Pray for your pets. Um, my second point is in as much as it depends upon us, let us act at home, at work, wherever, let us act in ways that are environmentally responsible. And let us undertake such work as an act of worship. Recycle, reuse, reclaim, repair as worship to be unrepentant with respect to environment to be unrepentant with respect to environmental stewardship is to be unbelieving with respect to the gospel thirdly in everything we must be prepared to live simply in order to have more to give away and share because in doing this we lessen our environmental footprint Live simply, as the saying goes, live simply. Let us live simply in order that others might simply live. Uh, The disparity, the global disparity between rich and poor today, is an environmental crisis as well as a humanitarian one. Um, Greed kills, and we have to acknowledge that. that was my second and third point. My second point was let us act environmentally responsibly. My third point was let us share. How do I combine those two things? Well, um, here's one of the ways in which I combine these two things. Every month, I tithe to some Barnabas. I do that electronically. do not see me put money in the bag. I do it electronically. Just the same as many of you, most of you. I, I tithe to my church. Having tithed, I then every month make regular monthly donations and contributions to a range of Christian organizations, some missional and evangelistic, others aid and development focused. And Joe and I um, sponsor a small number of children through Christian organizations in Africa, Asia and the Middle East. But I also um, make a regular monthly uh, contribution to an organization called Carbon Neutral the amount of my donation is calculated to offset the carbon footprint of my vehicle use and the money goes to revegetation programs around Geraldton this last sacrifice is as much an act of worship as any of the others it's a modest response I know and many of you are doing a lot more but it is a start Fourth. My fourth point is that we should, as a community, always be prepared to move. Over the centuries, Christians, and persecuted Christians in particular, have escaped destruction or poverty by being prepared to uproot, shift, and begin all over again. And just because somewhere is a good place to live now doesn't mean it's going to be a good place to live in 50 years' time, and vice versa. From Abraham onwards, the people of God have demonstrated that they were truly listening to God by being prepared to leave leaving abraham did it israel did it as did moses as did ruth as did daniel and his friends in the days of nebuchadnezzar as of course did peter andrew james john etc etc did climate change is going to mean mass migration something that that Phil will talk about in a few weeks time. And we and our children, we need to be listening and we need to be at least prepared to move. I've kind of increased in terms of level of uh, importance of these five points. Here's my fifth point and it's the most important one of all. We need to trust God because we can trust God. We need to just trust God because he's in charge What is God doing through climate change? Well, he's doing the same thing he always does. And that is, through climate change, he's revealing that Jesus Christ is Lord. I um, once saw a a, a documentary on um, the plagues of the Middle Ages. You know, the bubonic plague and black death and smallpox and all. I came in at the two-thirds mark. I didn't see the whole documentary. It's just as well, actually, because I hate things to do with sickness. And if I'd come in in the first two-thirds, I probably would have just switched off. But I only saw the last third, which was good. I didn't have to see any sick people. Um, and, and what I learned was that um, one of the things that the plagues did was the plagues killed more poor people than rich people. But in doing so, the plagues shifted the power away from the feudal lords and to the serfs and the peasants. Suddenly, the peasants could negotiate their terms for their labor because there was fewer of them. And in the end, the plagues broke the power of feudalism and allowed the world to move on and change for the better. Because it had to. Climate change is undoubtedly a judgment of God on our lifestyle and on the greed, the the unchallenged greed of our materialistic consumer-based society. And vast numbers of people are going to suffer, presumably beginning with the poor. We need to pray for grace and mercy. We need to be repentant, And we need to listen to Jesus with respect to how to live. But most importantly of all, we need to simply trust God because he knows what he's up to. And when God judges, he always saves. He saves those who trust him and listen to what he says. The Lord reigns Let all the earth rejoice. Amen.